If you've got your Bibles with you this morning, and I hope that you do, please take them and turn with me to Luke's Gospel, chapter 1. Uh, we've been in a series of sermons entitled Getting Ready for Christmas, and uh, over the last few weeks, we've been investigating all that, that Luke has told us so far in the opening chapter of, of his gospel here uh, as he attempts to help us get our hearts prepared for that which we are going to celebrate uh, later this month at Christmas time. And, you know, in many ways, as, as one writer has put it, what we've noticed so far, what we've studied so far in, in this chapter is, is sort of like a duet. Uh, where where one voice launches out and begins to sing, and, and then another voice comes along uh, behind that and sings its part, and then the two voices kind of come together in harmony. That's really the way that, that this chapter has, has come forth uh, to us so far. The first voice is a song that sings about John the Baptist. That's, that's how this chapter sort of begins. We saw about that in uh, the way that the angel Gabriel comes to this priest named Zacharias and announces to him that his wife, uh, Elizabeth will have a child, and Elizabeth is old. She's been barren, but he says that you are going to have a child, and 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 so that that first voice sings about uh, that coming, and then the second voice comes along and sings about the Savior. There we see that the angel Gabriel comes to uh, the Virgin Mary and announces to her that she too will have a child. She will miraculously conceive, and that she will bear a son whose name will be Jesus. And then those two different voices come together into a harmonious song there in the middle of Luke chapter 1 when Mary goes to visit Elizabeth and the, the two mothers are there to able to talk and to commune with one another. And so we have this harmonious singing of these two voices together. But then in verse 56 of Luke chapter 1, we see that Mary departs. She goes back to Nazareth, her hometown. And then our passage opens up for us this morning. We see that Elizabeth is about to give birth to her baby, and as such, we once again hear the soloist sing about the song of John the Baptist. And so Luke focuses our attention back on Zacharias, back on Elizabeth, and this baby boy born to them, and that's where we want to pick up this morning. So without further ado, just begin reading with me there in verse 57 as we hear the Word of God this morning. Now, Elizabeth's full time came for her to be delivered. And she brought forth a son. When her neighbors and relatives heard how the Lord had shown great mercy to her, they rejoiced with her. So it was on the eighth day that they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him by the name of his father, Zacharias. His mother answered and said, No, he shall be called John. But they said to her, There is no one among your relatives who is called by this name. So they made signs to his father, what he would have called him. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, saying, His name is John. So they all marveled. Immediately his mouth was open and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, praising God. Then fear came on all who dwelt around them. And all these sayings were discussed throughout all the hill country of Judea. And all those who heard them kept them in their hearts, saying, what kind of child will this be? And the hand of the Lord was with him. Now, his father Zacharias was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed is the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets, who have been since the world began, 
that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the highest. For you will go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of the salvation to his people by remission of their sins through the tender mercy of our God with which the day spring from on high has visited us, to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. So the child grew and became strong in the spirit and was in the deserts till the day of his manifestation to Israel. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together this morning. Lord, we thank you for your goodness to us and for your mercy about which this passage of Scripture tells us all about. So I pray that you would help us to have receptive hearts this morning by your Spirit working in us through the text that you have authored so that we might be able to hear from you the one true living God today. We pray these things in Christ's holy name. Amen. So as I mentioned, God's mercy, God's mercy, I believe, is a central theme of this entire passage that I just read for you. I think it's it's seen in, in how God demonstrates his mercy to Elizabeth and to Zacharias and ultimately to you and to me. I think all of that is, is, is here in this, in this passage. And as we work our way through this sermon today, I'm just going to provide you with a simple some simple sentences that, that I hope will serve as hooks for us to hang our thoughts on, but they are also very important things that I think we need to know about God and His mercy. So that it's going to accomplish a couple things. It's going to help us focus our attention on the, the text itself, but it's also going to reveal some things to us that we need to know about God, specifically about His mercy. And the first thing that I want us to know today simply is this, God mercifully keeps His promises. God mercifully keeps his promises. I want you to notice in verse 57, there's not a lot of fanfare given to the revelation that that Luke gives us there. So very succinctly and and without much uh, words, he just says, Elizabeth brought forth her son. But don't miss miss the fact that this, this verse there in verse 57 gives us the full understanding that God always keeps his promises. You see, it tells us that that the promise that that Gabriel had made to, to Zacharias back in the first part of this chapter, the promise that came directly from God nine months earlier did come true, just as the Lord had said it would. You see, there in Elizabeth's arms, she held this little bitty baby who was no doubt whimpering and cooing and and, and quivering underneath the cold and legs shooting out and involuntarily jerking and every single movement and every single noise that that little newborn baby made was a reminder to Elizabeth and it was a reminder to Zacharias and it was a reminder to all who knew their story that God always, 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 always keeps his promises even even when all the odds seemed stacked against him. That That was the issue with Elizabeth, right? She was old. Aged, advanced in years, as Zacharias said. She was barren. She had never conceived. It seemed that nothing could ever happen like this, and yet it did. Why? Because God mercifully 
always keeps his promises. In fact, that's exactly what Gabriel announced to Mary. If you remember from last week in verse 37 of Luke chapter 1, Gabriel said, used Elizabeth as the example. This one who is old and who had never been able to conceive, she is now with child. And then the angel Gabriel told Mary, because that's the case, you should know this, for with God nothing will be impossible. Now, we should also note that back in verse 14, when Gabriel announced to Zacharias all that he intended, all that God intended to do in Zacharias' life, that he said that when the baby that God was giving to them was going to be born, that it would not only bring joy and gladness to their hearts, but Gabriel also said in verse 14, he says, many will rejoice at his birth. Well, notice what happens here in verse 58. In verse 58, we read that all of Elizabeth's neighbors and relatives came to town, and when they did, they rejoiced with her. Don't, don't blow past that too quickly. Understand that everything God said was going to happen is happening. They're experiencing it. She's had the baby, and all of her friends and neighbors are excited about what is taking place. Notice also, too, that Mary sang this. In the, we looked at the Magnificat last week, Mary's song of, of praise to the Lord. Back in verse 50 of this chapter, Mary says this, that God shows mercy upon those who fear Him. That's important as well, because when we come to verse 58, don't overlook the importance of what Luke tells us there, that, that Elizabeth's relatives and her neighbors, they had heard how the Lord had shown great mercy to her. You remember it was Elizabeth who believed Gabriel. When Zacharias came home in whatever way he was able to communicate to her what was going to take place because he couldn't communicate verbally at that moment, you remember that Elizabeth believed what, the, what Gabriel had said. And it says there that she spent five months waiting, worshiping God, preparing her heart for what was going to occur. And as a result of that, she trusted God. She says there that, that she had believed that God had taken away her reproach from among people. I think it's important to recognize that by Elizabeth's neighbors and her relatives coming together and rejoicing with her and recognizing that God had shown mercy to her, that, that they recognized that she had not just had a baby. This was not just, just another child that was born. No, this was the work of God. God stood behind this. The Lord God of heaven was the one who caused this to happen. He was behind it all, and everything that happened to Elizabeth ultimately pointed to him. And what I want you to know, what all of those people recognize and what we need to recognize based upon what we see here is that God always, 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 always mercifully keeps his promises to us even when it doesn't seem like there's a way that he could go about it, even when the odds are stacked against him, even when it doesn't appear that there's any hope, God always, always mercifully keeps his promises. He works mysteriously. He defies odds. He, he shows mercy and he deals in grace. And when you and I believe in his promises and when we act in faith, on his promises, then he receives glory and praise and honor, not only from us, but from others who, who see our lives as a testimony toward him. That was certainly the case 
particularly for Elizabeth here in verses 57 and 58. But then as we continue moving through this passage, we come to the next sentence that I want you to see. You see, God not only mercifully keeps His promises, but we also notice this, it's important that we see it, is that God mercifully disciplines those who doubt. He mercifully disciplines those who doubt. You see, beginning in verse 58, the story progresses and we see that, well, I'm not sure that that Zacharias and Elizabeth's family is much different from ours. You see, on the eighth day, everybody came together for the ritual circumcision of this young little baby boy, and it was all a grand and glorious occasion until it came time to announce the little baby's name. And then the grand and glorious occasion tended ended up in a squabble. And that's where I think it's probably like most families get together, you know, everything starts out good until somebody says something, until somebody disagrees with someone. Well, you see that this takes place here. It came time for the announcement of the name of the child, and everybody there assumed, because this was the only child to Zacharias and Elizabeth, and because it was a boy, everybody just thought, they're going to name him Zach. He's going to be little Zach. They're going to call him Junior. Elizabeth says, not so fast. His name is John. And then you had one that says, well, John's a fine name, I guess, but there's nobody in our family named John. None of your family's named John. None of my family's named John. Where did you come up with the name John? And here's the most interesting part of this story. They completely dismiss this mother who has carried this baby in her womb for nine months. She's postpartum. And they dismiss her and turn to the father. Zacharias, who hasn't said a word, by the way, because he can't. We'll come to that in a second. And they make signs to him as to what he wished to name his son. I think that was a brave move right there, just just so you know. But notice what Zacharias does. Zacharias asks for a writing tablet. And on that writing tablet, he says this. His name is John. He didn't say, we're thinking about calling him John. He didn't say, what do y'all think about the name John? He said definitively, the child already has a name and John is it. Now here's what's interesting. He had to write that down on the tablet and you know why? Because back in verse 20 of chapter 1, when Gabriel had first come to him and announced to him that Elizabeth was going to bear a son... Zacharias was like, ah, how am I supposed to know that that's the case? There was doubt there. And you remember exactly what took place. Gabriel hit the mute button on Zacharias, and he was unable to speak. In fact, he spent an entire pregnancy unable to talk to his wife. What we see here is not only that, but he was, I, I think it's quite possible that he was also, that, that, that his hearing was shut off. You notice that the, the people who had gathered there had to make signs to him in some way to get him to understand, we want to know what you call him. So I think it's quite possible not only that he could not speak, but he couldn't hear anyways as well. And I think he spent nine months disciplined by God in that way for failing to believe what God had told him was going to happen And he had a nine-month period where he sat in silence and watched systematically as God fulfilled everything that he said he was going to do right down to the last detail. 
And therefore, when it came time for him to take the pen in hand and to tell everyone there what the name of this baby was, there was no doubt what the baby's name was. His name is John. You see, sometimes, sometimes God has to work that way in our lives. God mercifully disciplines those who doubt. He keeps his promises mercifully. That's that's a cardinal condition of who God is. That never changes with him. He always does what he says. He keeps his promises. Sometimes, sometimes we doubt. God not only mercifully keeps those promises, he mercifully disciplines us when that happens as well. I love love how J.C. Ryle puts it. He says, sanctified afflictions are spiritual promotions. Think about that. Sanctified, coming from God. Sanctified afflictions actually are spiritual promotions. You see, sometimes He has to lovingly afflict us. Sometimes God has to kindly discipline us in order to teach us to trust Him. And when He does... Let me say this to you. We ought not to push back against it and rail against God. Rather, instead, we ought to thank Him for His mercy working in our lives because it is good for us. It is good for us to learn to trust God more. It is good for us to be pushed into a place where we trust Him and take Him at His word. A life of obedience with dependence upon the promises of God is a life that is lived in joy and blessing. And I think that becomes obvious when we see what happens next. You see, after Zacharias puts an end to the debate with regard to the name of his son, and he writes those words down, his name is John. It says that everyone marveled at that, but then they really began to marvel. Why? Because just then, at that moment, God turned his hearing back on and turned his lips and his tongue loose, and he began to praise Lord Luke tells us in in verse 64, he says, immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and he spoke praising God. And listen, what what he said was undoubtedly was so amazing. It was so earth shattering. Everything that came forth out of his mouth was such an amazing and awesome thing that Luke tells us that fear came on all who dwelt around them. And all of these things were discussed throughout all the hill country of Judea. In other words, at every beauty parlor and at every barber shop and at every drugstore counter, the only conversation that was going on was about Zacharias and Elizabeth and this baby that she had just had. No one knew what to make of it. It was the most amazing thing they had ever come across and they kept asking what kind of child will this this kid be what what's he going to do what's his life going to end up being like they were the talk of the town and so we need to investigate so what it was that he said what what did Zechariah say that was so earth-shattering well that's where we come next You see, not only do we see that God mercifully keeps his promises, not only do we see that God mercifully disciplines those who doubt, but in his prophecy that I read for you this morning, what we also recognize is that God mercifully saves his people. You see, this is the thing that got everybody's attention, that salvation was on its way. In fact, listen, when when Zacharias begins to speak, he'd had nine months to prepare what he was going to say. He'd had nine months to think in silence about all that God had done. 
When his mouth opened up, he didn't begin with small talk. He didn't want to know what was for dinner. He didn't care what TV show was coming on. He didn't want to know what was happening next week. He had all of this built up inside of him, and the first words out of his mouth were the word blessed. That's why this is called the Benedictus. You'll hear about that in various various corners and when you hear it talked about. The Benedictus is actually Latin for the word blessed. And that was the very first word that came out of Zacharias' mouth. And he says, blessed is the Lord God. Why is the Lord God blessed? He says, because he has visited his people. Now, I want to come back to that in just a moment because I think that really helps us understand the whole idea of what Christmas is all about. He has visited his people, but on Zacharias' tongue is a blessing of God who has come to visit his people. And here's what I want you to see. He tells us over and over again throughout this entire song of prophecy what God has come to do to save his people. Look at, look at verse 68. He talks about the word redemption. Then again in verse 69 and verse 71 and verse 77, he talks about salvation. And then in verse 74, he talks about being delivered. Over and over and over again, the repeated emphasis of this song is that God has come to save his people. And that is such, such a, a, a radical thing for people to get their minds around that it caused them to talk constantly about all that Zacharias had said. Here's where I want to go back. I want us to think about what all of that meant. For, for the Lord God to visit his people. You realize that's exactly what Christmas is. Christmas is the celebration of the fact that the Lord God of heaven has visited his people. He has visited us through the person of Jesus Christ. And that's who Zacharias begins to sing about. What I find interesting about this song is that after nine months of waiting for his own child to be born, and he sees his wife there holding his child in her arms, this child that they had waited for and never believed would come, when he begins to sing, his, the first words of, out of his mouth are not words in song about that child. The first words out of his mouth were song, was a song of blessing about a child still yet to be born. Isn't that amazing? Notice what he says. He says there, blessed is the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. In other words, what we see there is that God mercifully keeps his promise by, by doing what he had prophesied and what had been prophesied about him all the way through Scripture. And here's where I think we get to the meaning of Christmas. You see, oftentimes what we recognize is that, is that the saving of Christ is not always the first thing on our minds. In fact, I would suggest to you that many times when, I, when, when we mention the word Christmas, when we talk about Christmas among ourselves, when we talk about it with our neighbors or those that we work with, when we mention the, the word Christmas, I would suggest that many times the image that comes to our mind really has often nothing to do with Christ at all. We think of Santa Claus. We think of reindeer. We think of snowman. We think of elves. We think of mistletoe. Any other, a, a large number of things. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that, but what I'm saying is that Christmas at its very heart, is about Christ and about what Christ has done. And so often our thoughts and the thoughts of many around us don't go there. But Zacharias wants to push us there. 
In fact, I suggest to you that he gives us in his song four images, and I want to just give them to you this morning that are there. And I owe this to, to Warren Wearsby and his commentary on this passage because he helped me be able to see this, and I just want to pass it on to you. Four images that I think bubble up from this text of which we ought to be aware that, that tell us what Christmas is all about. Paint for us a picture. Give us a, a metaphor of what the visitation of Christ really means. And the first one is this. It presents for us a picture of an empty prison cell. I don't know if you've ever thought about Christmas being the equivalent of an empty prison cell, but you should because here's the reason. He says the Lord God has come to visit us in order to redeem us. Redemption means to be set free by paying a price such as liberating a slave or, or setting free a prisoner from a prison cell. Jesus declared this of himself in Luke chapter 4, verse 18, when he quotes the prophet Isaiah. He says that he had come to proclaim liberty to the captives. He had come to set at liberty those who are oppressed. That's why the message of the birth of the Lord Jesus can never be separated from the message of his death. The message of Christmas cannot be separated from the message of the cross and Calvary. They go together. Why? Because His coming was so that He might die for our sins, thereby pay the price for our sins so that we might be set free from the captivity that we find ourselves in to sin and to its consequences. Ephesians 1 verse 7 tells us this, In Him, in Christ, we have redemption through His blood for the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace. Peter writes in 1 Peter 1 verse 18 and 19, Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like, like silver and gold, rather, Peter says, you were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ. Jesus came to redeem us from our sin, to set us free from the prison that we found ourselves in, and he did that by shedding his own blood. While in prison during World War II, Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote a letter to his parents. And he stated this, he says, a prison cell is a good analogy for Advent. He said, one waits and hopes, but the door is locked and can only be opened from the outside. Listen, that's what Jesus came to do. He visited us. And when he came, he held the keys to open the door to allow us to be able to escape the captivity and the imprisonment for which we have long since been held. Christmas, brothers and sisters, is an empty prison cell. But notice also that the visitation of Christ is pictured for us in Zechariah's song is this. It's a deadly horn of an ox. Now, I guarantee you, you've never thought about Christmas that way. The deadly horn of an ox. Zechariah says in verse 69 that the Lord God has raised up a horn of salvation for us. That's not a horn like we hear playing over here in the horn section. It's, that's not what he means. What he means, rather, as Daryl Bach has written, is that this is the picture of an ox with horn, horns that is able to defeat enemies with the powerful thrust of its protected head. I really like the way another one has put it. He says this, the horns are the business end of an animal, and you better get ready if he decides to use them. That's exactly what, it's the way of protection. It's, it shows the strength. It shows the might 
of an animal. And that's why Zacharias compares the visitation of Christ to such a thing. Because he says when, when God raises up his horn, when he comes to show his might and his strength, he says the Lord's enemies are all going to be defeated. In fact, notice in verse 71 and in verse 74 that, that that's the language that, that Luke uses. Wiersbe notes this. He says, in the previous picture, the prisoners were set free, but in this picture, the enemy is defeated so that he cannot capture more prisoners. It means total victory for the people of God. So, so Christmas, the visitation of the Lord Jesus is pictured as an empty prison cell. It's pictured as the deadly horn of an ox. Notice also it's pictured for us as a canceled debt. A canceled debt. Down in verse 76, Zacharias finally starts singing to his own son. I can just imagine what that must have been like when his eyes finally got down on his own child and he's looking at him. And he's thinking about what the, what the angel Gabriel had told him was going to be his son's mission in life. And he sings to him, he says, And you, child, you will be called the prophet of the highest, for you will go before the face of the Lord to prepare his way, to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the remission of their sin. That word remission there means to send away, to dismiss as if a debt is canceled. The message of the Bible is clear in that it tells us that all of us are debtors. There's not a one of us who walks through this life without owing. We're all debtors. We're debtors because of our sin. Our sin has caused us to become indebted to God. We have failed to live up to His standards. And as such... His forgiveness is of absolute importance to us because our sin is an offense against Him. And it incurs His wrath. It incurs His judgment forever. And so consequently, our greatest need is to have our debt canceled, to have our sins forgiven. We might be tempted to think, well, you know, if I've got that, then I'll just work harder. I'll spend my time and energy working harder to do more good things than I've done bad things. And at the end, I'll have more done good than I did bad and it'll outweigh it. And I'm just going to pull my own self up by my own bootstraps. But here's the thing. The Bible tells us that none of us can do that because we're all completely spiritually bankrupt. We don't have anything to begin with. There's nothing credited to our account. And so we have to have someone who will pay our debt for us. And that's what makes this song of Zacharias so beautiful because he tells us that Jesus came to do that. When he did, when he paid that debt, a debt that none of us could ever pay if we had a thousand lifetimes to work, what he tells us is that the word forgiven is stamped across the accounts of those who are his children. I don't know how excited that makes you, but when I think about Christmas that way, it does something to me. It lights me up when I think, when I think that Jesus stamped forgiveness across my account. And I know, I know better than anybody in this room what kind of things and debts that I had incurred against God's wrath. Thank you, God. In His mercy, 
would forgive me? Brothers and sisters, it doesn't get better than that. I don't know what excitement builds in you when you think of Christmas. But when I think about Jesus coming and visiting this earth in order to set me free and to, and to, to win the war against sin and death and hell and the grave and then to cancel my debt, how much better can it be than that? Well, hold on. Because notice this. Notice it's not only an empty prison cell and the deadly horn of an ox it's and a canceled debt, but notice the last picture that's there. It's a glorious sunrise. Christmas is a glorious, glorious sunrise. Zacharias continues singing this song to his son in verses 78 and 79. And he says that his son is going to prepare the way for the coming of Christ by, by giving the people knowledge of what salvation is all about. And he says he's going to do that through the tender mercy of our God with which the day spring from on high has visited us to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet in the way of peace. If you can just imagine a group of, of travelers that are out and they're making their way through the, on a journey and it gets to dark time and, the, and they're out in the wilderness and they're overtaken by nightfall, and they're overtaken by darkness, and they're far from the safety of their home. They're exposed to the terrors of the night. They're vulnerable. They're scared. They literally, as, as Zacharias says here, they sit in the darkness and the shadow of death. Philip Graham Ryken notes that that's exactly Israel's situation during the days before Christ was born, and it is the situation we are all in until we are saved. We are sitting in the darkness of our sin, waiting for death to devour us. What a horrible, horrible image. But then it happened. It was the first glimmer of the morning light. The sunrise began to come and the light penetrated the darkness. That's what dayspring means. Dayspring means the sunrise. And that is exactly what happened. And it's a beautiful picture of the salvation that the coming of Jesus Christ ushers in. It means moving from the darkness of sin and death into the light of His love and His mercy. Isn't that a beautiful picture of Christmas? Listen, apart from Christ, every single one of us sits locked away like prisoners in a prison cell. We're defeated by our sin and by our enemies. And because of our sin, we owe a debt so large that we could never pay it. And so we sit in that dark dungeon and we wait without hope and without God. But the glorious hope of Christmas is that the day spring has come and light has broken through and has banished the darkness and the debt has been canceled. Our champion has won the victory for us and defeated our enemies and we have been gloriously set free from our prison cell and that is what the visitation of the Lord Jesus Christ is all about. That is the meaning of Christmas. And I doubt very seriously that any of those images are going to appear on any Christmas card that you receive or anyone that you send out this year, but maybe they should. Maybe those thoughts need to be more in our mind all the time. Maybe in order for us to get ourselves truly ready for Christmas, for us to truly have our hearts prepared for the coming of Christ, we need to focus back on what Christmas is all about. 
And these metaphors, these, these images should be front and center of our minds to help permeate our thoughts and to be a part of what we sing and a part of what we pray. Zacharias sings in, song, in, in verse 78, it is only through the tender mercy of our God demonstrated by the visitation of the Lord Jesus that any of us have any hope for eternal life and eternal joy. And as this entire section of Scripture has pointed us to, God mercifully always, always, always keeps His promises. God will mercifully discipline you in your doubt, but God mercifully saves His people. And that's what leads me to my sermon in a sentence this morning, which is this. It's only after you cease doubting and believe that the light of God's promised mercy has shone upon you, setting you free, giving you victory and forgiveness. It's only then that you will truly be ready for Christmas. It's only after you cease doubting what God has done and you receive it that you will truly be ready for Christmas. Here's the question. Are you ready? Are you ready? I'm going to ask everyone in this room to do something that I don't typically do. Those of you who are worshiping and joining us from home, I'm going to ask that you do it there where you are as well. I'm just going to ask you to just bow your heads and close your eyes. No one looking around. The reason that I'm asking for this is because I believe that sometimes, sometimes there are moments when you need to remove anything that would distract you from being able to focus your attention fully on Christ and on your relationship with Him. So this is for you. With your heads bowed and your eyes closed, I just want you to ask yourself this question. Am I truly ready for Christmas? Am I focused on the Christ of Christmas who has visited this earth bringing freedom from sin's power, victory over death and hell in the grave, forgiveness of the debt that I have incurred because of my sin? Am I focused on the one whose bright light of hope pierces the darkness of my life and illumines my path to peace with him? Is my heart filled with faith? and trust, and confidence in the merciful God who always, 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 always keeps His promises. Or if I'm honest, do I still doubt Him? Do I harbor a deep amount of uncertainty with regard to what He does and what He has promised that He will do? If that's the case, then let me say to you, if that's where you are, then you're not really ready for Christmas. Not in the sense that God desires for you to be ready. Not in the sense that you can truly enjoy Him and His gift to the fullest. But I want you to know this morning that God mercifully extends His grace to you. The salvation that He offers to you can be yours today if you will by faith. Trust in Jesus. Repent of your sins and Make Him Lord of your life. With all those heads bowed and eyes closed, if you would like for me to pray with you specifically about that, about the fact that you want to know Christ in that way, 
would you just look up with me, look up at me and make eye contact with me for just a moment? So that I know how to pray for you. Thank you. Thank you. I want to be able to pray specifically that you can have that peace in your heart. And that you can come to know the Lord Jesus as your Savior. In just a moment, I am going to pray to that regard. I would also encourage those of you who are at home. Maybe you'd like to reach out to one of us who are on staff here at this church. You'd like for one of us to pray with you specifically. There's a number on your screen there that you can call, 470-238-8862. If you'll call that number and leave a message, one of us on staff will be back in touch with you. We would love to be able to talk with you about what it means to be, become a follower of Christ and to know for sure that you are ready for Christmas because you have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. Those of us in this room and those of you at home, as you still are con contemplating this, here's what I would say. Maybe, maybe what was best for us, those who have trusted in Christ to do, is to realign our thinking and to begin to consider these, these images that, that Zacharias reveals for us. Allow those things to roll through our minds so that we can see Jesus for who he truly is and, and celebrate Christmas for the real truth of what it is. The question is, are you ready for Christmas? And I hope and I pray that you are. Brothers and sisters, this is the Word of God. It is for the people of God. Let's pray together this morning. Lord, we are so grateful for your goodness and mercy. You've demonstrated it again and again and again and again in our lives in individual ways. But as we have looked this morning, you have demonstrated it through Christ and through His coming. And that this Christmas season though it can be about so many other things, if we fail to recognize what it's truly about, then we miss the whole purpose. So I thank you for being born in a manger, but I thank you for dying on a cross on Calvary for my sins. I thank you for rising from the dead on the third day. I thank you that you have now ascended back to your throne in heaven and that you are there interceding for us right now. And my prayer is that your intercession leashes the Holy Spirit in the lives of these who are in this room to impact us, to, to save us, to, to help us to understand you better and to come more closely aligned with you. This is my prayer. And I pray it in Christ's holy name.